Good evening. Let's uh, turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. And we will be looking at this um, very important, but uh, solemn warning passage here. Uh, I'd like to read starting from verse 1 all the way to verse 8. And may God plant his eternal word deep into our souls. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those who for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, your word tells us that we ought to take care how we listen to your word. We pray, O Lord, as your word is unfolded, that by your spirit, our hearts would be receptive like the good soil that yields much fruit. Ready our hearts, we pray, to be humble and to tremble at your word. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we've been studying this great epistle, perhaps you have, you've had this passage in Hebrews 6, 4-8 to circled for a while. It's a passage that the most astute students of the Bible have wrestled with both in this age and in the ages past. It's a passage that has been fiercely debated. This passage marks one of the great theological battlegrounds of Scripture. And here is a clash between Calvinism and Arminianism. On the one side, the Calvinists strongly argue for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and say these can't be speaking of true believers, otherwise they wouldn't fall away. On the other side, the Arminians argue that the opposite and say that true believers can fall away because they focus on the descriptive phrases of a Christian here and say, You cannot portray a true Christian any more powerfully and accurately than is done right here. You've gone back and forth on what this passage means. And so once we turn the corner in Hebrews 6, you know this passage was lurking in the shadows. Well, there may be another reason why you may have circled this passage in Hebrews for a while. And since this passage comprises, along with Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, two of the most terrifying warning passages in all of Scripture, You've always wondered if you've committed the sin that Hebrews speaks of. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher in London, said that he has seen over the course of 35 years of ministry, more Christians struggle with their assurance because of a misunderstanding of this passage than perhaps any other in Scripture. He said it's not that this is the hardest passage of Scripture to interpret. He said it's not. There are other passages that are harder to interpret than this one. It's that this passage of Scripture has had a unique power 
when misunderstood to unsettle the hearts of unbelievers. And so the difficulty is not only that this is hard to understand, but the difficulty for some is that this is hard to swallow. People are worried that because they've committed a certain sin or because they've repeatedly fallen into the same sin, they're worried that it is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. There are some who struggle already with assurance of salvation, and they point to this passage right here as the one that troubles them most. But here we must realize, dear friends, that the author of Hebrews included this passage for good and soul-profiting reasons. Not for us to get into endless debates concerning Calvinism and Arminianism. This wasn't meant to be some fruitless exercise of academic debate, whether the Calvinist or the Arminian will try to one-up each other. He included this as a pastor who, in his love for them, saw in his congregation the real danger of turning back on God and the temptation to go back to Judaism. He meant it for the good of our souls, to spur us on to maturity. And the author of Hebrews certainly wasn't aiming to unsettle the assurance of true believers. He wasn't in his study saying, what could I say to make real Christians doubt their salvation? That's not his goal at all. He understands that there is the possibility of apostasy. These warnings to him are real, not imaginary. They come in the context of people in this congregation that are considering turning their backs on Jesus and going back to Judaism. He's not talking about sincere Christians who are struggling with sin. He's dealing with those who are on the verge of turning their backs on Christ. And when we consider the context of our passage, we'll see the goal for why the author of Hebrews included this difficult passage. Now, after this very encouraging exhortation in verses 1 to 3 to press on to perfection and maturity, it seems as if he abruptly goes into a very dark passage. Now, though the transition seems very abrupt, it is not without good reason. You see, if Christians do not grow out of babyhood, something we spoke of last week, if they do not press on to maturity, they will go back. And if they continue to regress and go back, they will reach a place of no return, of completely falling away. It is the grave danger of apostasy that the author has in mind. And so my goal in this sermon is not to settle the debate whether Calvinism is superior to Arminianism or vice versa, although you will see my conviction on this issue. But my goal is the same goal as the author of Hebrews, to warn against the fatal danger of apostasy and encourage you to go on what the author will go on to say in verse 11, to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, to guide our thoughts tonight, I'll be asking four questions in order to warn against the danger of apostasy. These questions are as follows. Number one, what is the danger of apostasy? Number two, how does apostasy happen? And number three, is it possible for an authentic Christian to fall away completely? And four, how can apostasy be prevented? So question number one, what is the danger of apostasy? It is clear that the danger the author is warning of is of one's open and final rejection to Jesus Christ. Apostasy is the deliberate, willful, decisive rejection of the gospel. And it is of extreme gravity that the author then warns his listeners. Now, keeping the context in mind, we said before that these Hebrew Christians 
were tempted to turn back to Judaism. And because of the persecution they faced, they lacked the confidence in Christ to persevere in the Christian race. And the author was sounding the alarm to the possibility of their dropping out of the contest altogether and placing themselves beyond all hope of restoration. Now the emphasis in verses 4 to 6 falls on the main verb, to renew them again to repentance, which is introduced negatively by the phrase, it is impossible. In fact, it is impossible is the first word in the original Greek in verse 4. The New King James Version has the right emphasis and the right word order. For it is impossible, it begins in verse 4. That initial, it is impossible, is forceful and emphatic. This does not mean that it is difficult or that it should be lessened to not fitting. No, impossible means impossible. The expression clearly means that something cannot happen. Now, it must be noted in the letter to the Hebrews that there are four impossible things. It is impossible for God to lie, chapter 6, verse 18. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, chapter 10, verse 4. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, chapter 11, 6. And here, it is impossible to restore someone who fallen away back to repentance. Therefore, the author speaks of the impossibility of restoring those that are described here by these five gospel privileges. And by bracketing, it is impossible for those to renew them again to repentance. The author wants us to see what exactly are the kind of people in danger. Who are the people that are mentioned here? There are those characterized by those who have been enlightened, tasted, shared, partaken, tasted of these gospel privileges. Now let's take these one by one. We must say, first of all, that they professed repentance. It tells us it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, indicating that they had once professed repentance. And presumably it was evidenced publicly and they're turning away from their sin to Christ. This describes a person who once professed repentance and who left behind their former ungodly life and who were on a road that leads to holiness and living for Jesus Christ. Secondly, they are those who once have been enlightened. Now, no doubt this idea of being enlightened goes back to the picture of Jesus as the light of the world, the light that enlightens everyone, John 1.9. As Tom, Thomas Bilney, the 16th century Protestant martyr, said, when I hear the words, Christ came into the world to save sinners, it was as if uh, suddenly a, a light broke in the midst of a dark night. Now, in the scriptures, we see that to be enlightened describes an inward operation of the spirit so that the reader or listener would have a spiritual understanding of the gospel. Now, the author of Hebrews will later describe this enlightening in chapter 10, 26, in another warning passage, as those who have received the knowledge of the truth. Now, as we go through these descriptions, I have not at all said whether those described here are truly converted. I'm simply stating what Scripture defines and describes these gospel privileges. Thirdly, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. What is it to taste of the heavenly gift? Well, as early as the second century, to be enlightened became synonymous for baptism. Justin Martyr, for example, in AD 165, states that the term enlightenment was used 
in his day as a synonym for Christian baptism. And he himself calls the person baptized the enlightened one. It has been an attractive interpretation. Because following one's baptism then, they tasted of the heavenly gift to mean tasting of the Lord's Supper. Now that certainly makes some logical sense. That those who have repented, have been baptized, and they partake of the Lord's Supper, thus tasting the heavenly gift of the bread and cup of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now though this is possible, the author probably had in mind something more broad. To taste something means to experience something, to test something. The writer of Hebrews has already said, already used tasted in the use of experience where Christ tasted death, chapter 2. And so to taste the heavenly gift refers then to the experiencing of the Holy Spirit. It is Peter who designates the Holy Spirit as a gift of God in several places in Acts. Now this makes sense with what comes next. Fourthly, they are those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now to be faithful to this text, we must note that the author has used the same word back in chapter 3 verse 1 as partakers of the heavenly calling and also in 3.14 as partakers of Christ. And so to dilute this expression to mean anything less than a genuine participation of the Holy Spirit is inconsistent with the author's use throughout this book. Now in contrast to former Judaism, the Holy Spirit was powerfully active at the founding of the congregation with various spiritual gifts, demonstrating the Spirit's work and giving authentication to the truth of the gospel. And so like the other descriptions, the view of one partaking of the Holy Spirit gives an impression to us that these are converted believers. They are not at all describing that those exposed to the Spirit's convicting powers but unresponsive to it but those who are receptive to the Spirit and who even demonstrate the spiritual gifts of the Spirit. Fifth, they have tasted the good word of God. Again, we have the tasting imagery of experiencing something, and here it is tasting the good word of God. It is referring to someone hearing the preaching of God's word and the gospel and points to one's enjoyment of the preaching, one's liking of the preaching of God's word. It describes one who experiences the word of God and finds it good. And because the gospel has been enjoyed and experienced, it follows that certain powers of the coming age have also been experienced and witnessed. The powers of the age to come is a reference to what Jesus said back in Hebrews 2.4 where it says, Signs, wonders, and various miracles will accompany the preaching of the gospel. And so just as the exodus of the word that Moses and Aaron delivered to Pharaoh in that wilderness was accompanied by miracles and powers, so in this age, that is in the days of the Messiah, great miracles and powers are evident in Jesus and his followers after his ascension. Again, these descriptions are not someone who is willy-nilly about their walk with Christ. Someone who merely attends church while not being committed and involved. This is describing someone who has been enlightened, tasted the good word of God, experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet these descriptions lead up to the ominous falling away. It is then apostasy that is warned of in these verses, not just ordinary backsliding. You see, the author speaks about 
falling away, not falling into sin. You see, a true believer can find himself or herself caught up in sin or some, in some sinful way of life. There is repentance for backsliders and forgiveness. David's case proved this to be true. He fell terribly into sin, committed adultery and murder, and yet there was forgiveness for him. He was able to re- repent and to be restored to God. So this warning is not for those who are growing cold in their faith or falling into sin. There are many Christians who, whose love for Christ have gone cold or indifferent to Christ, and Hebrews is not talking about that phenomenon. No, this is the grim reality of total falling away from Jesus Christ. This is complete repudiation of the gospel. This sin then is sin against the light. It is sin committed, not in ignorance, but in the face of knowledge and even the experience of the truth. This sin of apostasy is described by Jesus as the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the Gospels. The Apostle John called it the sin unto death. Always the point being made of apostasy in the Bible is that there is no possible recovery from this sin. Apostasy then is the open and willing renouncement of Christ after one has been privileged of knowing and experiencing the privileges that belong to the grace of God. And the great terrifying danger of apostasy becomes clear. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. In other words, is it impossible to bring them back after they have turned back is our author's point. What a serious statement. It is a statement that says once you've crossed the line, there is no point in return. Why is it impossible? Well, look with me at what it says. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame, to fall away completely, to turn back from Christ, in effect, is to take up the hammer and the nails and beat them into Jesus' hands and feet, to mock Him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered. He saved others. He cannot save Himself. It is to join the mockers in the crowd that yells, crucify him, crucify him. It shows their true colors. I would argue that the guilt of apostasy is greater than those who actually crucified Christ because it presupposes a knowledge of the truth and then a departure from it. And for the author to say they crucify again for themselves the Son of God is a dreadful paradox. What he's saying in effect is Christ has died once for all. It is therefore unthinkable to crucify him again. That's the point of the author. This is precisely what those who commit apostasy are doing. They are crucifying afresh none other than the Son of God, the one whom they once knew as the author of eternal salvation, and to turn back on Christ is to put themselves in the position of those who had him crucified, thus leaving them no room for salvation. And beloved, notice that the author's exalted title of Jesus, the Son of God. This exalted title is intentional by the author, for the majestic title of Jesus heightens the enormity of their crime. As the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry notes, they declare that they approve of what the Jews did, 
in crucifying Christ, and that they would be glad to do the same thing again if it were in their power. They poured the greatest contempt upon the Son of God, and therefore upon God Himself, who expects all should reverence His Son and honor Him as they honor the Father. They do what in them lies to represent Christ and Christianity as a shameful thing and would have him to be a public shame and reproach. This is the nature of apostasy. It is a denial of the saving significance of Jesus' life and death, a deliberate rejection that leads to its terrible and permanent finality. Now that has troubled people. Throughout Christian history, people with sensitive consciences have wondered and have agonized over the thought of committing this sin unto death, this sin of apostasy. You know, I recall a few times in my ministry where people who have fallen into some sin and very alive to its guilt have worried over committing this sin. They don't doubt their guilt, but they are terrified that now there may be no way to remove it. And I'm always quick to tell them, if you are frightened, If you are terrified and alarmed that you have committed the sin unto death, you have not committed the sin. And I say that people who commit the sin don't worry and they don't lose sleep over it afterward because the sin of apostasy is the rejection of the very belief that it is only by a living connection to Jesus that one can be saved. Nevertheless, it is a real sin and it has been committed. And we would be wise to ask the next question, how? does apostasy come about? How does apostasy happen? It does not come through one single act of sin. But as the Puritan John Owen says, apostasy comes in a course of sin or sinning. When sin is persistently followed, it hardens the heart and it deadens the conscience and it suppresses faith. And it plunges the sinner to such depths so that repentance becomes impossible. You see, when you are committed to your sin, and when there is this willful disobedience in the face of God to commit that sin, eventually, God will give you over to your degrading passions. He will give you over to a depraved mind, Romans 1, where there will be no more opportunities of forgiveness. No more opportunities of God's favor. No more opportunities to repent and be made right with God. This was the very issue that the author had in mind when he warned the Hebrew readers of how they have become dull of hearing. This was the whole issue of why he sarcastically called them babies. Those who should have been teachers by now, but that they have regressed back to the bottle and the danger of the sluggishness of hearing and being spiritually resistant to the truth is completely falling away where the heart becomes so hardened that it is beyond help anymore. This is what the warning of drifting away back in chapter 2 can lead to. That if you allow yourself to drift down into the river of sin, so that there remains no more fight against that sin, no more pursuit of holiness, and no more pressing on to grow, there will come a point of no return. You know, I heard this illustration once before of a, of a vulture. A vulture who spotted the corpse of a fox on a big hunk of ice that was floating down the river toward Niagara Falls. He flies to the ice and lands and begins to eat and devour the fox. 
He watches the falls approaching and he hears the warnings of danger. But he tells himself that he has wings and that he is free and does not need to pay attention to such warnings. He, after all, is a vulture who is destined to fly. As the, at, the, at the last minute, he finishes his feast and he spreads his wings, but he can't fly because his talons have frozen in the ice and he is dragged over the falls to destruction. And friends, so it will be for those who have repeatedly heard the warnings from Scripture, the warnings to give more earnest heed to the things of the gospel, lest we drift away, the warnings of the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, the warnings to forsake the world and pursue holiness. But you put off these warnings by saying, well, I have wings. I am a Christian after all. I can fly anytime I want to. I've been baptized. I've been grown up in church. I'm a member of Pillar Baptist Church. I'll clean up my life later on when I get older. The day will come when at last you will not be able to repent because you have reached that dreadful place of no return. It is difficult to say precisely where the line is crossed into the land of no return. That is one of the frightening realities of apostasy. That tells us that sin is not to be trifled with. We are not to treat sin so lightly with the forethought of God's automatic forgiveness as if to continue in sin so that grace may increase while forgetting that we who die to sin cannot live in it. This is a warning not to presume upon God's grace. It's a warning to fight against sin. It's a warning to what happens if you continue loving the world, if you continue allowing your heart to be sluggish to God's word, it's also a warning that the church is no place for playing games. Hebrews shows that it is very dangerous business to toy with such knowledge. By delaying to put into obedience and in faith in what you know, you run the risk of a terrible fate. And so the author of Hebrews does not want us to underestimate the danger of our souls of turning back on Jesus. The sin of apostasy is so horrific that the question you've been asking and wanting to know is, can this happen to a Christian? If the descriptions given of those who fall away are those that match the description of a Christian, is it possible for an authentic Christian, someone truly saved by the blood of Christ, to fall away completely? Can the sin of apostasy happen to an authentic Christian? This is the question we'd like to know. This is the crux of the debate. Now, though the author uses strong Christian language to describe those who commit apostasy, I will argue that these are not true, authentic Christians. Well, how then do you explain such a thing? Well, a key principle of interpretation, of Bible interpretation, is to acknowledge that God is the ultimate author of all of the Scriptures. And since God is true and infallible, there can be no inconsistency in Scripture. And so whenever we come across a difficult passage, we must interpret them in light of the clear ones. That's a basic rule of interpretation. As the theologian Lorraine Botner puts it, since the Bible is the word of God, it is self-consistent. Consequently, if we find a passage which in itself is capable of two interpretations, one of which harmonizes with the rest of the scriptures, while the other does not, we are duty-bound to accept the former. 
It is a recognized principle of interpretation that the more obscure passages are to be interpreted in light of the clear passages and not vice versa. And so rather than pressing this passage in Hebrews on all of the other passages of salvation in Christ and interpreting this as an authentic Christian who can lose his salvation, it is better to shine the interpretive light in the opposite direction. The whole testimony of the Bible is clear that if you are truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. Our Lord Jesus has said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Notice the strong language. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Apostle Paul says, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans that believers can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I can go on and on. And the point is that the scriptures are overwhelmingly clear that if you are truly the Lord's, he will never let you fall away. When the redeeming blood of Christ is applied by the Holy Spirit to the very heart of a man's being, it is a work of God that cannot fail. And coming back to our passage then, in light of those clear passages of Scripture, this cannot mean that authentic believers can fall away. Otherwise, it would directly contradict a lot of the passages in the Bible. And so we need to interpret a difficult passage in light of the clear ones in all of Scripture. But we also need to interpret a difficult passage in the context with which the writer is saying. When we look at verses 4 to 6 in its context, we'll see also that this cannot be speaking of true believers. Now, let me just point out a couple. Firstly, the author of Hebrews did not assume his readers were in the condition described in these verses. I want you to notice how the author shifts from the personal pronoun you, chapter 5, 11, and 12, then to us, chapter 6, verse 1, and then to those, beginning in verse 4, which tells us that he does not suggest that he is actually describing any of his readers. Moreover, if you look at verse 9, it reads, but beloved, we are convinced, notice the shift of pronouns again, of better things concerning you. And notice that next part, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. It is clear from the author that this statement controls the whole of his understanding of verses 4 to 6. And whatever significance the description is of verses 4 to 6, it does not have a saving significance. Well, then you have this little parable starting in verse 7. Go to Hebrews 6, verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those, for those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The parable is easy enough for us, for us to understand. God is the one who sends the rain of his mercy upon the soil of human lives. The soil enjoys the benefits of the rain, of God's blessings coming down on the hearts of humankind. And what matters is not whether or not the rain falls upon the ground, for God sends rain on the good and the evil. 
But what matters is the presence of the fruit. Similarly, Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The purpose then of the parable is to warn how you can experience the rain and receive the word of God. But this alone cannot save a person unless genuine spiritual birth has taken place. And when rebirth is evident, spiritual life develops and brings forth fruit. Such people described in verses 4 to 6 were never genuinely united to Jesus Christ, divine. Oh, beloved, there is the ever-present danger in trusting in experiences and not Jesus Christ. Did you notice that something was missing in this description of gospel privileges? What's missing in this catalog in verses 4 to 6? What's missing there that should be there? There is no mention of faith in Jesus Christ. There is no mention of heart repentance. There is nothing said about bearing the cross. Everything that is described is about experiences. You see, the striking thing about the experiences these verses describe is not so much what they say as to what they omit. It is possible to be enlightened without being converted. Respected pastor and commentator Ray Stedman entitled his section on Hebrews, The Danger of Knowledge Without Faith. We can be like the prophet Balaam who had a great deal of the knowledge of the Lord God and had a great deal of light and still was not a genuine believer in Christ. We can experience and taste the word of God and not digest it. We may experience the worship of the church without its inward beauty. We may share in the gifts of the Spirit without experiencing His graces. We may share or partake in the benefits of the presence of the Spirit and not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What is the testimony of every true believer? Is it that they had a conversion experience? Oh, the single unifying testimony of every true believer in Jesus Christ from whatever background, for whatever tribe, whatever experiences you may have is that upon a life I have not lived and upon a death I did not die. Another's life and another's death I stake my whole eternity. It is the testimony that says my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What was Israel's sin, their great sin throughout their history? It was presumption upon God's grace. It was trusting and priding itself in its privileges, in its experience, but not in the God who gave them. And so the writer is saying them and to us, are you trusting in your experiences? The terrible case of Judas Iscariot furnishes us with an illustration of this very thing. In fact, these verses could have been written of Judas Iscariot. He walked for over three years in the company of the Son of God. What floods of light fell upon his path? What taste he had of the heavenly gift and of the good word of God? 
What powers of the world to come did he experience? He was one of the twelve to whom the Lord gave power over unclean spirits, and of whom it is said, they cast out many devils and anointed oil with many that were sick and healed them, Mark 6.13. And yet this miracle-working Judas was all the while a son of perdition and not a saved man at all. He fell away, and it proved impossible to renew him unto repentance. Trusting in experiences cannot save. Experiencing the powers of the coming age where without ever personally committing themselves to faith in Christ is portrayed in the most frightening way by our Lord Jesus at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount where he says in Matthew 7, 22, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What a warning. Philip Hughes in his excellent commentary on Hebrews puts it this way. The sin of apostasy then is the grim possibility for persons who through identification with the people of God have been brought within the sphere of the divine blessing. They may be baptized as Simon Magus was, occupied in Christian labors as Demas was, endowed with spiritual gifts, preachers even, healers of the sick, casters out of demons, privileged to belong to an inner circle of disciples as Judas was, and yet their heart may be far from the one they profess to serve. Profession of faith and possession of Christ are not the same thing. This is important for us to hear today. Beloved, I I know very gifted men who have become apostates. I know from experience people who have been experiencing all these things that Hebrews 6 talks about and become apostates. And I know that you have your own tales to tell. Tales of people you love and known. People you have always assumed to be Christian because they always seem so solid in their faith, always serving the church, but now wondering, where is he? Where is she? He seemed to be opposite of what he once was. We have in our very own congregation what seemed to be some dramatic and wonderful conversions, only to see them coming to nothing over time. The joy seemed so real then. They seemed to really know the gospel. And by all appearances, they were really living by the gospel. But in a year or five or ten years later, they were back in the world. Strange as it seems and difficult it is to fully explain, we have seen it happen. So then, how should we avoid apostasy? Now, in a sense, this whole book of Hebrews answers that question as well as the next section in Hebrews 6 and chapter 6. But if I could point to something specifically from our passage, I would say firstly, you must take stock of your faith. The whole goal for the author of Hebrews in verses 4 to 8 was to warn his readers that it is very possible to be in the Christian community and to participate in the blessings of the Christian community and not really have faith in Christ. What he seeks for us to avoid is to trust in groundless 
confidences. Scripture warns that a time of great apostasy may be a time of false security amongst professing Christians. Whether it's confidence in their experiences, confidence in external religion, confidence in one's performance and Christian duties. So you must take stock in your faith. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? He's saying don't trust in any experience, however dramatic it may be. Don't trust in external religion. Trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that will take you to heaven. And so take stock of your faith. Secondly, guard against the means and the occasions of apostasy. You and I should keep a watch on our own hearts since this is where any declension will begin. Almost all apostasy arises from a secret negligence of duty. It arises from a love of the world and the satisfaction it is able to provide. We need to keep Demas before our eyes to serve as a warning to what happens who having loving this present world, it says, he has deserted the faith. Beloved, we would be mistaken if we took our sins lightly. If we thought it is only those sins of murderers and rapists and fornicators that are of danger, but not the beginning of sins in our hearts. John Owen says that the beginnings of great evils The beginnings of great evils are to be resisted. Therefore, keep watch. Keep watch against error. Watch against temptation. Watch against the cares and pleasures of life. Watch against secret desires. In short, in the words of the Apostle Paul, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Third and finally, In order to avoid apostasy, you must focus your whole life to seek the glory of God. Set your heart on God. Cleave unto the Lord. Incline your hearts to God. Thirst and hunger for God. When we set our hearts on God, we will learn to pray and to witness for that glory day by day. We will daily look to the safety in Christ and in no other. When you set your heart on God, your own sensitivity to sin will be increased and your resolve to suffer with and for Christ will be strengthened. You will be more concerned with what is going on inwardly in your heart than putting focus on your outward behavior. When you set your heart on God, you will deal with the remnants of corruption in your life, not simply because of the apostasy to which you eventually lead, but because all sin is an affront to the majesty and holiness of God. And when you set your heart on God, Christ will be central in your thoughts and you will cultivate communion with Him as your deepest desires. I cannot put setting our hearts on God any better than the prayer than what Sinclair Ferguson has often mentioned from Richard of Chichester. Day by day, dear Lord, three things I pray to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, and to follow thee more nearly. May this be the earnest prayer of our hearts, to set our hearts on God and so avoid this great danger of apostasy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these loving warnings to expose the true nature of our hearts and to motivate us to persevere to the end. We see how we have all 
taken our sins but lightly. We recognize that we have more head knowledge of the truth than faith in applying that truth. We understand how our hearts can be pulled back to the world rather than moving towards God. We confess these sins and pray for more trust and faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness. For those that are here who are on the verge of turning back on Christ, cause them to see the dire situation in which they are in and so cause them to run to faith in Christ. Help us to all not rest in our experiences, not in our performance, nor in how much we know, but ultimately to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.